Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Nearly 10 million immigrants have upended the demography, culture, and voting patterns of the nation, especially in its teeming urban centers. In the wake of such overwhelming change, resistance to immigration and immigrants have metastasized, determined not only to restrict foreigners from entering the country, but to disenfranchise, demonize, and occasionally terrorize those who have already arrived, settled, and earned citizenship here. Now, by in recent years, I mean 1830 to 1860, and the rest of what I just said isn't quoted from 2024 website. It's from Harold Holzer's newest book, Brought Forth on This Continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration. We'll talk with the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from... The Brewster Building, third floor, office A320, on the campus of East Carolina University, but I'm not officially here. The rest of the building is pretty much empty on a Wednesday evening in February 2024. I'm not speaking for the university. My guest won't speak for his employer. None of us speak for anyone else, just ourselves, always on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, here at East Carolina, it's uh, another week into the uh, spring semester. Spring break is still distant on the horizon a few weeks away. Uh, It's the gray time of year. 
but the, the men's basketball team won a game, which was quite uh, uh, impressive last weekend. And the women's team continues to win. The lacrosse team has started. They've won their first two games. Uh, softball has started. They are 7-0 and already. They had a walk-off win in yesterday's home opener. There are a lot of bandwagons here for me to get aboard when, uh, when the big sports, football and basketball, are not playing well. There are lots of other good things to see on campus, and those games don't cost anything, and most of them are in ESPN+. Plus. ESPN+, Plus is our unaware sponsor of the evening. They have no idea the show exists. They haven't paid anything. Um, I'm just giving them a plug because I watch college sports there. It's Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2024, as we talk uh, and this is the time of year when academic searches are going on. Uh, candidates come to campus. The searches have been narrowed down to three candidates in many cases. Uh, we don't have any in our department this year, but we did it this time last year. I was looking at my notes from a year ago, and I was at on the search committee for a new department chair at that time. I mentioned to you uh, that I was that there was a. Uh, I had dinner with a candidate the night before, and I could not relay the story of what happened because the search was still underway, and it was you know, confidentiality limited to that. Well, the search is long over, so now a year later, uh, what happened last year on Valentine's Day was I was scheduled to go out to dinner with a candidate and another colleague uh, from the committee. That's that's what you do. You take candidates out, make them comfortable before their show the next day. But no one had realized, no one had told us, or the restaurant hadn't told the planner, or nobody figured out that on Valentine's Day, the restaurant we were going to was uh, like date night only. It was all Valentine's, uh, prefix dinner for two was the only thing on the menu. Uh, the tables all had these little romantic centerpieces. So the three of us had the most awkward uh, dinner imaginable. I think we ordered two dinners for two because we couldn't get food for three people. Um, you know, we, we discussed whether it would be appropriate to feed uh, appetizers to one another in a romantic fashion. We concluded that would not do. Um, it was it was awkward. Uh, it, it, that's all I'll say. Uh, glad that was over. Uh, but you never know what's going to happen when you participate in the academic uh, job sweepstakes. You do know what will happen if you go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, which is you can find out who's next up on this show and who's on going to be here in the future. Next week, uh, our guest will be Scott Hippensteel, and he will talk about his work in geology and the Civil War. He has a book called Sand Science and the Civil War, Sedimentary Geology and Combat. We'll talk with Cecily Zander the next week. She is an up-and-coming Civil War historian who has been highly recommended to me by a number of people. And her first book, The Army Under Fire, The Politics of Anti-Militarism in the Civil War Era, will be our subject. And then it will be spring break, thank goodness. Uh, time to relax and uh, catch up on grading and course prep and maybe even do some writing this this spring break but we'll be back in march 2024 on the 13th victor vignola 
has written Contrasts in Command, The Battle of Fair Oaks, May 31 to June 1, 1862. And it's just Fair Oaks. We're not getting into Seven Pines one thing at a time. I think he's working on the second half of that for another book. And we'll follow that with John. And Reeves, Soldier of Destiny, uh, Slavery, Secession, and the Redemption of U.S. Grant. So another Grant book, our third one of the season. Well, you can influence who's going to be on next. Some of these books have actually been suggested to me by others by uh, sending me an email. When you go to impedimentsofwar.org, you can click on the contribution button. There's no direct connection between how much money you send me and how likely I am to accept your suggestion, or at least that's what they want you to believe. Um, you can test this theory by giving a large contribution and seeing if your your show guest isn't immediately scheduled. It would, it would, and then as a control, have someone else suggest without paying anything and see how that goes. In any case, the contributions are not tax deductible as we approach tax season. Finally, quick thanks to Mark Gaffney, who runs that website. Uh, he has had to deal with Amazon reconfiguring their links to books, so he has to re-enter all these links so you can buy tonight's book and every book uh, when you go there directly from the website. That helps fund the website, I should add. And he's also been adding transcripts of the, the brief uh, introductory paragraphs that, that you hear from me at the beginning of the show, uh, all on his own. I have not put him up to that. I'm, I'm grateful that he does all this uh, for your benefit and mine. Well, let's bring on our guest tonight. Uh, Harold Holzer is no stranger to listeners to this program. He has been on, as of tonight, officially more times than anybody else in the history of Civil War Talk Radio, going back to its foundation in 1894, no, in 2003, 2004, 20 years ago. Um, his current book is called Brought Forth on This Continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration. Uh, Harold, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Jerry. Um, thank you for the very witty um, opening. I was trying to suppress my laughter here so I wouldn't talk over you. And I had well, no you... idea that I had hogged the airwaves to the extent that you just alleged well, you, you've you've earned it with your your output. I did. I had to change a few verb tenses in that introduction because you were writing as a historian, and I moved into the present tense. Uh, I, I taken, heard that. Yeah, it was a very it, those are your, very those are your words. I kind of recognize them, but thank well, you. I appreciate well, it. Well, I mean, the topic that that brings us to the obvious opening question. Um, the, the immigration is, is, you know, a topic in the 2024 presidential election. Uh, what brought you to that same topic, to, to immigration, in connection with Abraham Lincoln? You know, I've always wanted to do this. I kind of signed a contract to do it about nine years ago. Um, and then I got waylaid usefully, um, not nine years ago, I should, well, yeah, I guess it was nine years ago, and I got waylaid usefully into um, what became the president's versus the press, because so much of the 2020 campaign, 19 and 20, were, was being diverted to whether the press could be relied upon. And this was the major, the immigration book was what I originally 
signed to do, so it evolved into what they call a two-book deal, which I've never had in my life. Mm. Finally, I got to this, and um, I, I was kind of um, turned on by Jason Silverman's um, concise Lincoln book called Lincoln and Immigration, mm-hmm. which touched on this subject but left me, you know, some ample room to bring my own take. And also, I'm the grandson of four immigrants, and mm-hmm. um, it, it appealed to me to um, think about their experience. I only knew one of my grandparents, but her experience and what I know about the rest of the family and their origin stories. Um, I wanted to look into Lincoln's origin story and then how he treated others um, who were in his own lifetime emigrating here. I, I share that. We're getting an odd sound as though somebody is eating potato chips on the line, which I'm sure is not you, Harold, while you're talking. Although, if, unless you No, are, I did. I must be... say I popped a throat lozenge because I felt I, I was losing my voice. So I'll try well, to let I... it melt without <laughs> rattling it on my teeth. Yeah. And, and I've, I've seen, I, I get the emails from the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago and other places. I, I see you are doing uh, podcasts, and I don't feel too hurt that you're doing podcasts besides this one, but we'll leave that alone. Um, but you're doing podcasts. But none of them are releasing until now because, um, ah. because there was something of an embargo, I guess, ah. until, until yesterday afternoon, which oh, was the official pub date. So we are right on top of things here with this. Uh, listeners, you're hearing it here first. Um, the, this, uh, the book is, in, I mean, I was immediately interested. Uh, like you, i also the grandson of four immigrants. Uh, and, and, you know, I was immediately drawn to this. But there's a lot, in, it, it doesn't require that as a background to be interested in the topic or this book. Let me start with a, then a, a kind of a challenge you your argument in the book that, that I saw is that Lincoln's views toward immigration evolve over time which is something people have said about Lincoln's views toward race for many years yeah but you but you acknowledge in the book that when people say oh Lincoln's views evolved about over race sometimes that's a, a, an apology to to try to cover up some of the less enlightened things Lincoln said about race early in his career. Um, is Can we make the same criticism here? Is this an apology for Lincoln's views on race? I think more than an apology, because mm-hmm. he kept his darker views to himself, frankly. Oh. Um, his public statements on immigration were, over a 21-year period, rather consistently embracing and open. Um, his evolution came... With, when he stopped playing footsie with nativists and know-nothing party members in an effort to widen his own political tent to bring more people into the anti-slavery coalition and then the new, the new Republican Party. Um, and I guess he stopped telling offensive jokes. Uh, he stopped uh, engaging in near-fatal duels with Irishmen. Um, and and I think he, it's not so much that he went from being racist to being the great emancipator, mm-hmm. um, at least racist by our standards, I guess, but he went from being um, kind of 
playing both ends against the middle early in his, or actually at the midpoint in his career, to being totally revolutionary on the subject of immigration toward the end of his presidency. And that, I think, was remarkable and kind of unsung in the Lincoln literature and in the general impression of, of Abraham Lincoln. So that's the well, that, evolution I was referring to. I mean, that's one of the things, another great takeaway from this book, and some, is finding anything to write about Abraham Lincoln that hasn't been done uh, over and over. And your discussion of the, the legislation he proposes to encourage litigation, not litigate, to encourage um, <laughs> that's immigration. That's a former lawyer talking there, Jerry. That's right. What In his lecture to lawyers, he's, the lawsuits, he says, never encourage right. litigation. Right. Um, but do encourage immigration. Uh, mm-hmm. And I guess we're going to take a, a quick break, but I'll, I'll lay a question out so you can think about over the break. Um, how important was immigration as a political issue in Lincoln's political career? Did did it matter? I mean, today, obviously, it's one that people are talking about all the time. Uh, so that's really the question I want to start with when we come back. Uh, where does it fit in, in give us some context for immigration in the 1840s, 50s, uh, and Lincoln? We're talking tonight with Harold Holzer winner of the Lincoln Prize and author of Brought Forth on This Continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Harold Holzer about his brand new book, Brought Forth on This Continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration. So we left off with a question, Harold, about... Was immigration a significant issue for for Lincoln before 
uh, before his presidency. Yeah, I think it was a, uh, um, a huge issue in American politics beginning in about 1846 when the Irish began coming en masse to escape famine in, in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Ireland is the only country in, in Europe to lose population in the 19th century. Um, mm. And uh, the, it, it triggered a wave of anti-Catholicism that became violent in several cities in the East and affected the, frankly, it, it, it arrested the growth of the Whig Party um, and put them on the census. Uh, because of their hostility to immigrants in the East and affected Lincoln almost immediately. And then came a wave of Germans after 1848 uh, seeking not food but but freedom in the United States uh, after the failed revolutions of that era in in continental Europe. And that set teeth on edge because people objected to what they thought was a clannish behavior by Germans who like to continue speaking their own language and start their own clubs. And, and, and uh, by the time, by the 1850s, there was an organized nativist movement, a secret one, that then metastasized into an, a, a standing political party, the American Party, that ran a presidential candidate on a nativist ticket in 1856, that attracted 22% of the vote, which is a little bit frightening. It, 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 well, it, it reveals that, that uh, you know, streak in American political culture of anti-foreign, anti-immigrant sentiment. Uh, Absolutely. It, it's, it's not, not, not a new thing not new. by any means. Right. No. Well, it, well in, I in think, Lincoln, Jerry, if I go ahead. A, can, yes. I, can I add one thing? The, Absolutely. The, the thing to keep in mind that makes... Um, earlier agitation, as Lincoln would call it, over immigration different, is that the original um, um, attitude toward immigration was perhaps fostered by an extraordinarily um, liberal and and welcoming set of laws. In fact, the the absence of laws. Mm -hmm. The, The Constitution gave the federal government authority over naturalization, but not immigration. It was a sort of one of those things that was left to the states by lack of specificity in the Constitution. And there were no borders. There were no walls. There was no razor wire. There were no Border Patrol people. There were no ICE uh, deportation people. And all a person had to do was find a way to get here and register on arrival, principally in New York, but also Boston, Philadelphia, Savannah, and list your, your, your gender, your age, your country of origin, and five years later, that was changed to 14 and back to five, you could re- go back to where you came or any federal office and swear an oath of allegiance and become a United States citizen. And in the interim, you were encouraged to work, not hide. Uh, and that was, a, you know, um, shocking to many people and shocking to many people today, uh, how free it was and how, um, how welcoming at least the legal attitude of the United States was. 
so there were to say there were no quotas there were no 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 apparatus at the border to to check people you just right. showed up and right. uh, and you're welcome to become an american in terms of numbers um you, you pointed out the irish begin to arrive in the 1840s after the potato famine strikes germans after the 48 revolutions in europe when lincoln before that when lincoln was in new salem or when he first moved to springfield did he have much contact with uh, immigrant non-native born americans i searched in vain um for for evidence of his encounters, there are very few and no evidence except for people who came in and out uh, and, and or traversed through New Salem that he had contact mm-hmm. with many Irish people, if any. Um, I think his earliest ex- um, exposure to foreigners came uh, when he went to New Orleans twice on a flatboat because mm. we know, of course, at least according to John Hanks, that he was, you know, visibly saw slave auctions and was was deeply outraged and moved and allegedly swore that one day, if he had the power, he would strike against slavery. Um, and of course, that was the key takeaway from those visits to to the first multicultural city he ever saw. But uh, he also saw people who spoke French, and he saw Haitians, and he saw international types who came through New Orleans because it was a major a major port. And I think that was his first awakening to a wider world. Uh, ultimately, in Springfield, um, there is a, uh, a Swedish immigration followed by the Irish immigration. And the Irish move in in significant numbers in Springfield. Many of them are of the servant class and uh, mm-hmm. are sent by agencies west. And, you know, the state capital of Illinois must have seemed an appealing place to stop because there were it was a busy town and there were lots of homes of fairly well-to-do people. And you didn't even have to be ter- terrifically well-to-do to afford a, a live-in or part-time servant. And we know that Mary Lincoln employed uh, several Irish girls as they were called to work mm. in their home. And that was another point of exposure. And then we also know that Lincoln got to know a Billy Florville, who was really uh, William de Fleurville, a Haitian, um, mm. and who became his barber and sometime law client as well. So that, that his, his horizons are definitely ex- expanding by the time he's in Springfield. And by that time, there was a huge Irish vote in Illinois, and a significant German vote as well. And as he's becoming involved in politics, you know, we know Lincoln's a, a Whig, you know, always a Whig in politics, he says, uh, of right. himself. So, but the Whig position, um, you suggested earlier, is is not as welcoming. Uh, at, at a time when there's Whigs and Democrats, um, yeah, the Whigs are not the pro well, party. The Democrats had a had a smarter attitude, which was um, I, the Irish were embraced, welcomed, and registered into the Democratic Party, <laughs> and that seemed to foster deeper resentment among the Whigs because they hadn't the organizational um, impetus that the Democrats had, and as a result. They seem to have grown in hostility rather than found a way to 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 make a case 
that their platform would, should be equally, if not more, appealing to immigrants. Um, and the and the Whigs complained about uh, many Whigs in Philadelphia, for example, uh, complained about efforts by Irish Catholic Democrats in that city to replace a uh, a Protestant prayer in the schools with a Catholic one. Uh, the Catholics asked for it only in their neighborhoods, like Kensington in Philadelphia, and it was enough to trigger really quite bloody riots on the streets of Philadelphia in 1844. Such serious riots that that some, some, at least much of the violence blamed on Whig antipathy to Catholics that all the way across the country in Springfield a Whig meeting was called uh, to make an official statement about the issue, the rioting and Lincoln of course being the best writer in the game was was um, called upon to write the the statement of the of the meeting, and he, while he said rather disingenuously, I think we don't know what caused the riots or whose fault it was. He did, for the first time in his career at age 35, say that um, people from other lands had every right to come here, and uh, and he encouraged it. But you you point out then that while the Whig party as a whole is not especially welcoming to immigrants. Uh, Lincoln is not really towing the party line on this. Um, uh, at well, one point, I think you, the, you, statement he, the statement he made um, <laughs> that constitutional rights belong, as he put it, no less to the Catholics than to the Protestants, and he, they, the, he, we oppose all efforts to interfere with these rights. That statement is surely like the Declaration of Independence, brooded about by all of the Whigs at this meeting. Mm-hmm. So I think he's he, he is speaking for all the Whigs in, in Springfield at that point because the issue is becoming uh, destructive to the Whigs. But no, he definitely gets credit for that statement. In fact, the. The Illinois State Register, which, as you well know, was the opposition paper to the Whigs mm-hmm. at that point, the Democratic paper, praised Lincoln for um, uh, for being unlike many of his fellow Whigs, for being a decent fellow who seemed to harbor no prejudice against anybody. Well, you, you use the phrase uh, that Lincoln could be considered a wino, uh, a, a Whig in name only, uh, which I made me laugh out loud. But yeah, I know a couple of people have have commented on it that it made them laugh. So I'm yeah. glad. Um, yeah, he at this point was certainly becoming a wino, not in the in the anti-temperance sense, but in the mm-hmm. uh, falling away from some whiggish problems at that point. But as we know, he stayed in the party for another, you know, a long time, another ten years, I guess. Now, when you were giving us the background on the immigration situation, you, you point out by the 1850s you've got an entire political party coalescing around anti-immigration, anti-foreign yeah. sentiment, the, the, the know-nothings, the American party. Um, Lincoln's letter, uh, when, when Lincoln is asked by by his friend Joshua Speed if he's what he, what's he going to do now the Whigs are disintegrating are you a, a no nothing and he writes that famous letter that uh, uh, I, I I mean we could both quote it by heart I'm, I'm sure uh, yeah that, that how how you know he, he's not a no nothing how could he possibly uh, be prejudiced against various 
European immigrants uh, when, when he's calling for justice for black Americans, or at least anti-slavery. Right. But that's a private letter. Does exactly. he express that, that publicly? And, and that's a point I, I made in the book. You know, mm-hmm. this, it, this letter appears as a, um, you know, a revelation of Lincoln's um, um, humanity in every Lincoln biography. But Josh Speed never made it public. Um, he didn't make it public until after Lincoln's death. Um, so I think we've long attributed too much importance uh, to this statement. Uh, he wasn't willing to say so publicly. Um, he wasn't willing to denounce the know-nothings. He was too worried about offending them, and he says that over and over again to people. Now, a week before he writes this letter to Speed, which was really delayed, Speed apparently had written to him months earlier, and Lincoln had just not answered him, and I'd love to know what Speed wrote to him. Mm. And Jerry, you well know that Lincoln was a terrible... Uh, archivist, right? He right. Until John Nicolay went to work for him in the during the presidential campaign, he saved almost nothing. It's such a tragedy, including his own manuscripts from the pre-presidential period. Everything's gone except notes and fragments. The scraps, and, right. Um, yeah, and I'd love to know whether Speed wrote something kind of chiding uh, to Lincoln, saying, you know, why haven't you spoken out? What is it with you? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but a week before he had written to um, Owen Lovejoy, an abolitionist um, Illinoisan, and said much the same thing. I am not a know-nothing. Um, you know, how can anybody who uh, deplores the condition of Negroes, as he put it, be uh, be have a aversion to to white Europeans? Um, and but he also says to Lovejoy. Um, but no nothingism has not really vanished from our midst. Um, uh, it hasn't tumbled into pieces, I think is his, or his words. An open push by us now, he says, can offend them, and it would prevent our ever getting them. So his real move here, his chess move, is to get no nothings to join the new Republican Party. And he says, I have no objection to fusing with them, or fusing with anybody, as long as it's on grounds that I think are right. And I think that's the true, that, that was kind of a quasi-public statement, because I'm sure he thought Lovejoy is going to be useful in telling nativists, anti-slavery nativists, that uh, Lincoln doesn't hate you guys. He wants you guys to kind of quiet down and join his group instead and turn your energy to, to preventing slavery from spreading west, which the nativists agreed with, actually, and the know-nothings agreed with. Mm-hmm. So he's making, he's creating some strange bedfellows, and I think, um, um, I mean, he, in retrospect, he was wise not to let them go to the Democrats, but the Democrats were such a party of immigrants that they never would have settled there. What Lincoln is doing is hastening the destruction of the Whig Party, but widening the appeal of the Republican Party, all for the greater good, and he was such a great tactician. I mean, that's a point that comes out in this book and, and in any study of Lincoln, that, that he doesn't always say the the perfect ideological thing, but he's always working in a direction to, to, to accomplish his ends. And, and sometimes he'll say yeah. things that uh, 
that will get it done. Now, you, you quote his speech in the, the, the July, July 10, 1858 speech where he talks about how uh, you know, many Americans today are not essentially descended from the Mayflower. Um, but as long as they come to the United States and, and profess the ideals of the Declaration, they're just as American as anyone else. And I'm not using Lincoln's words, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, it's another great speech. That's a public statement. Is that it what is he's coming out finally? May I give the context? <laughs> a little bit of context. It's a yeah. great public statement, but the lead-up is fascinating. So he, this is, of course, the season of the, of the Lincoln-Douglas campaign. They haven't started debating yet. It's Jul- and he, Lincoln is invited to a July 4th picnic to be hosted by Anton Hessing, the leading German Republican in Chicago. And for some bizarre reason, Lincoln uh, doesn't go. Um, we have a you know, the string of these moments in Lincoln's library doesn't go. He doesn't go to Boston to say all honor to Jefferson. He doesn't go to Springfield to say some of you may not like, may not want to fight for Negroes, but they seem willing to fight for you. Two really great speeches that he just sends by 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 letter, mm-hmm. and um, he should have gone to this picnic because he must have read in the papers that there were hundreds and hundreds of spectators and lots of politicians shaking hands. So six days later is the first Lincoln-Douglas debate, in a, in a way. Douglas speaks at, at night at the, in, on the balcony of the Tremont House in Chicago, and the next day Lincoln appears by agreement, and he, and he gives a, a rejoinder. And, and he's standing and up and, and beginning his speech, he looks out at the crowd, and he sees Anton Hessing. Anton Hessing stands out of the crowd. He's almost as big as Lincoln. And I think he, that's why he says, I see some among you who are not uh. descendants of the founders of this country. And this is his opportunity to make up for the snub of July 4th. I mean, everything has such a rich that's, context. That's a great context. But then, yeah. Harold, we, yeah, we have to take another quick break uh, oh, at sure. this moment. Uh, we'll come right back, talk more about this fascinating topic, uh, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration, which is the subject of the book Brought Forth on This Continent. It's by Harold Holzer, who's our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Harold Holzer, author of Brought Forth on This Continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration, released uh, this very week, second week of February 2024. Harold, you were describing the, the, the wonderful speech Lincoln gave uh, just before the Lincoln-Douglas debates started, um, in, in which he speaks on this issue of, of immigration and Americanization. Uh, go ahead and, and, and pick that up, if you would. Oh, sure. So he, he looks at this crowd of Germans and non-immigrants, and he says so that the foreign-born have a right to claim the Declaration's promise that all men are created equal. And this is a, this is a precise quote. As though they were blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh of the men who wrote that declaration. And so they are. Um, and then he says that's the electric cord that runs through the Declaration of Independence, which is the more famous phrase. But as I, but as I wanted people to, to, to look at it and understand the difference between leaders who say that immigrants are poisoning the blood of America and those who say they're enriching the blood of America. I don't. I try very hard not to be political, not to be presentist, which is the term of art mm-hmm. of the day. But mm-hmm. it just it just screams out at us um, for comparison to today's politics, which are all about how much to limit immigration. Nobody's talking about how to deal with people who are here, for example. Well, the. the uh I'm going to leap over the election of 1860 and Lincoln as commander-in-chief and come back to those, but I want to get right to something we touched on earlier. Uh, The legislation that Lincoln proposes when he's president uh, in in his State of the Union or or annual message to Congress in, in December of 1863 you use the word revolutionary to describe this proposal. What, uh, talk about what's in the proposal and why it's revolutionary. So it's not specified in the annual message, which, by the way, is not in his hand except for the, um, the uh, reconstruction part of the annual message. He was a pretty sick guy when he wrote this, uh, this message. I'm talking mm-hmm. about interesting context. He had gotten smallpox um, uh, you know, everyone calls it a mild form of smallpox, right. but it was enough to kill his valet, who was yeah. attending, who was tending him in the White House. It was serious. He could have died from 
mm-hmm. from this fever he he caught. Um, and um, uh, while he was in his sickbed, he comes up with this idea to create a Bureau of Immigration. Now, that's a novelty because, as I said, you know, there's no Alexander Mayorkas in the Lincoln administration. There's no federal organized oversight over immigration. But Lincoln wants an act to encourage immigration. That's pretty novel. But here comes mm-hmm. the revolutionary behind-the-scenes thing. Lincoln wants a program in which the federal government will pay for the ocean passages of immigrants. And the reason is that immigration had slowed down once the Civil War began and had slowed down even more when the military draft uh, began in March of 63. Mm-hmm. So in, although it was beginning to come back, Lincoln wanted also, well, first, he wanted to include foreigners in the draft, and, and then when he cured the legislation, they exempted new immigrants from the draft and included them in the Homestead Act. Um, you know, foreigners were just as uh, entitled as native-born Americans to take advantage of the free homesteads in the West as long as they tilled the land and improved mm-hmm. the land, they would keep it. And I, I would say that the underwriting part was totally revolutionary. It, it, as it happened, it was a bridge too far for Congress and for even the pro-Lincoln Republican press in New York because they eviscerated the idea to bring the refuse of Europe and debauched women and um, and indigent idiots, criminals. So that was a, that never happened, but it was quite a moment. So, so that part got written out of the legislation. But where, where, yeah. how did the proposal fare? Where did it go next? Well, I know that um, those of us who have been following the news will not believe this, but there was a compromise bill that uh. went through committees in the House and Senate. Slightly different bills were passed. A, a, the, um, the bills were adjusted. A, a bill for both houses was presented. It was passed. Um, this happened between the, the first week of December and the first week of July. It was all wrapped up in a neat ribbon and presented to Lincoln, and he signed it on the fifth anniversary of, of actually the sixth anniversary of the picnic he didn't attend. Um, uh, he signed it on July 4th, 1864, and he knew what that symbolism was. It was a continuation of his belief that all men are created equal applied to, um, uh, to immigrants as well. But, if, you know, there was certainly uh, a... a a uh, a reason why he was so enthusiastic about this. It wasn't just because he was um, a humane fellow. Mm-hmm. It was because hundreds of thousands of soldiers had died. Tens of thousands more had been injured. Um, he needed soldiers, and he also needed, as he put it very specifically in his annual message, he, they, he needed civilians to work in mines, factories, and farms. So there was a national interest there was a worker shortage. And by the way, we always have a worker shortage, and immigrants always fill those jobs that others don't want to fill or in, are not are indisposed to fill. That, that, again, historically, you're right, that, that, that each succeeding generation, uh, yeah. immigrants will take typically the, 
the entry, the most most difficult or unpleasant, lowest paying jobs, and then work their way up up the ladder. The uh, so so this got passed. So there was no funding in it. Although you point out there was an encouragement for private employers to fund travel. Yes. Now that was at some a compromise. Point, it, it, this looked a little bit. Um, there were at one point there was a version of the bill where uh, employers would fund it and then the person would be obliged to work for them for a certain number of years. It sounds like indentured servitude. Um, it did. It was a little bit of indenture, indenture, but hey, it was good enough for Samuel Lincoln in eight sixteen thirty seven. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it is a kind of ironic, and it, it, it suggests that the situation had become dramatic in terms of worker shortage, because Lincoln also signed two years earlier the Cooley Act, which is you know reprehensibly named, mm-hmm. but it is a Chinese word that the Chinese invented, I will say, to suppress the so-called Cooley trade, which Lincoln and the Republicans thought was too much like the slave trade. And that was an indenture system by which Chinese workers were being um, exported from Asia to California to work the mines. California was 63% foreign-born in 1858. It's, wow. it's, um, and uh, people were getting anxious about it, also foolishly, as it turned out, because Chinese workers were essential to the terminus of the Transcontinental Railroad, for sure, and all the other interior railroads that connected that vast state north and, northward and southward. So it's a mixed, it's all a mixed bag, and... Um, but it's when Lincoln signs a, a you know a slightly different improvement of the bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, he doesn't get to sign it. He proposes it. It passes. It's signed by Andrew Johnson a couple of months after Lincoln dies. That 1865 bill, which also is a further act to encourage immigration, is the last legislation to encourage immigration for exactly 100 years until Lyndon Johnson signs an Immigration Reform Act in 1965 to encourage specifically Asian immigration after Vietnam or during Vietnam and to expand um, quotas. Everything between 1865 and 1965 is a series of restrictive bills encouraged when the Supreme Court ultimately finally says acting on the Commerce Clause, that the federal government does have the right to govern uh, immigration. It's all restrictions after that, particularly, Jerry, after our grandparents started coming in the 1880s, Mm -hmm. 1900s, and early uh, 20th century. No, there there was a literacy test that was imposed, I think, in 1917 that Wilson signed, which could have kept my grandparents out. I was telling my students today, we were just studying that era, and said, you know, I'm sitting here at East Carolina with a, a doctoral degree from Harvard, I might add, for listeners who haven't heard me say that recently. Um, <laughs> and both of my brothers, one one is a PhD, one is an MD, does actual doctoring. Uh, so in three generations, from illiterate to, to PhD, uh, you know, that's the American story, isn't it? It is the American. Uh, now, were your parents illiterate in every language or just English? Uh, my grandparents uh, right. in English. Yeah, grandparents in English. Um, yeah. they, they learned. So my grandmother, my, the one I knew, did not read or write. Um, I didn't know that while she was alive because mm-hmm. they kind of kept it from me. 
hmm. as if I could have loved her less. I mean, she was a, yeah. the most wonderful person, the nicest person I've ever met in my life. And I was told later that when we lived in different parts of Brooklyn in the early 1950s, she was taught how to do this once, and then she did it on her own. She took the subway from her part of Brooklyn to ours by counting the stops on her fingers. Uh, so she wow. didn't count either. And you know, I, as you well know, I used to work for uh, Mario Cuomo. Mm-hmm. He, uh, his parents came to America with, without knowing English or counting. Um, and they were Italian-American, and their Jewish neighbors, um, whose name I used to know, came and taught them bookkeeping. And mm-hmm. in return, Mario was dispatched to their house on Friday nights, on Saturday mornings, to turn the stove on because uh, religious Jews were not allowed to light the flame right. on the Sabbath. And he was what they call a Sabbath goy. He turned the flames on so that they could cook. Wow. That's, again, that's America. There are so many. the way it was. In, indeed. And I, in, uh, I, I don't despair that it's that that dream is, has gone away, that uh, it still happens to a lot of people. Uh, it's one of the great things about teaching at a, a, a school like ECU is how many first-generation college students there are here whose, yeah. whose parents didn't go to yeah. college and couldn't. But we're off well, track um, and, and almost out of time. I want to say quickly... Uh, for listeners who are fans of Karl Schurz, the uh, German-American politician and general, he is almost gets second billing, I would say, in this book. He, you have a lot of great stories about Karl Schurz, uh, the German-American that, that Lincoln interacts with during his presidency. Uh, and before. There, there's, and before. Starting with uh, there's, of course, Douglas debate. You've got Franz Siegel, of course. Um, yeah. You've got Irish military officers uh, that the people have heard of. James Shields comes back, Thomas Marr, many others. There, there are so many uh, connections between immigration and specific immigrants uh, that Lincoln deals with during the war. Um, but we're, we're essentially out of time. But I, I want to ask you this with with. Uh, almost trepidation because I'm afraid you will you will have multiple answers. Uh, what are you working on next? You know, it's I don't have multiple answers for the first time. I don't I don't have anything to work on, um, and I don't even know if I will. I may do some chapters in writing, but this took a lot out of me. <laughs> and um, I'm going to spend three or four months traveling and talking from coast to coast, I'm excited to say, because as I speak, it's freezing in New York. Um, and um, I can't wait to go to Florida next week and to California the week after that. So that should be fun. And um, I don't know. I would still, I'll answer it by saying I would, I've always wanted to do a book about called Lincoln from Life. But it's such an expensive thing to undertake these days, and uh, I'm not sure a publisher would want to do a lavish book um, about a person who is hard to write about these days without, um, you know, acknowledging things that uh, we didn't acknowledge when you and I began, well, I began before you did, Mm -hmm. our careers in the Lincoln world. Um, It was almost universally acknowledged that he was the greatest American and the greatest American president, and sadly, and everything about him was fascinating, but we have been emphasizing his flaws for the last 20 years, and it's sort of, 
depressed the market, among other things. And uh, I don't know. We 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 seem to look for chips in the marble in everyone now, rather than emphasizing what made them singular leaders and. Um, in Lincoln's case, an apostle of democracy as well. Well, well, your book, I would say, does the latter uh, it, in its discussion of Lincoln and immigration. Uh, listeners, the book is called Brought Forth on This Continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration. Uh, if you've read any of Harold's other books, you know you need a copy of this one, too. Uh, it, it is thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, and Harold, thank you so much for coming back to the show. Jerry, thank you for helping me to set a record of appearances. <laughs> and listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Have a good week.